0: Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum41, 30 Seconds to Mars. Oh, and Two-Door Cinema Club!
1: Thinking sideways.
0: I don't understand.
1: Does not compute.
2: You never know. Insufficient data to formulate a mind? What? Stories of things we simply don't know the answer to.
0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast again. Today is a bit of a different show. It's a bonus episode. If you listen to our episode that came out on Thursday, you'll know that we had done an interview with Seth Margolis about uh, Elizabeth I, and it was a great interview, and we had a lot of content, but we didn't use but a little bit in the episode, and we wanted to to, to share that with you. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go ahead and actually share with you the interview. Uh, it was Joe and myself for that interview. Devin wasn't unfortunately able to make it, but it's a great interview. I, It's a lot of history and a lot of good information, and I think you're going to like it a lot. So... Let's roll that interview.
2: And you've done a lot more research on this really than we have, and so I guess I'd like to know, do you really think Elizabeth had a child?
1: You know, I don't know. I would suspect not. I tend to be a discounter of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, it it was a really um, intriguing idea for a novel, and there are bits and pieces of her life and the circumstances around it that might lead you to think she had a child. Um, but I, I tend to think she didn't. But you know, I think it's sort of like, you know, if you think about the Kennedy assassination, again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in general, so I think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. But a lot of people just feel that it's in, in, it's just unthinkable that this great man who was so beloved at the time, and, and maybe even more so in retrospect, could be brought down by one lunatic with good aim. It, you want it to be a conspiracy because it seems unfitting that such a great person could be eliminated by such a nobody. With Elizabeth, there's a similar frustration that, you know, arguably the greatest, Certainly, the greatest monarch in, in in English history, and maybe one of the great leaders in world history, just ended. You know, her 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 line ended uh, with her death, and the Tudors were were no more. Her genes were no more. How could that be? It just it, it doesn't seem fitting somehow. Um, so people constantly want her to um, to have left something behind. Um, and and in a way, that's the I think that's part of the fascination with her in general. And it's and it's certainly the reason that a lot of these. Theories uh, continue to flourish, and it's really the reason I wrote the book.
2: So after Elizabeth Elizabeth's death, uh, the the Tudor line ended, and a lot of people believe that uh, the the English monarchy went kind of downhill after that. Yeah, well, it's it. I
1: mean, the Stuarts were particularly mediocre, and um, you know, they within less than half a century. You know led to um, the English Civil War with Oliver cromwell the um the um, assassination or the execution of charles i um and but you could also argue that things didn't get much better after that there weren't executions but i don 't know that um you know that that, that there have been that, that the monarchs who came after um, Elizabeth I ever were a particularly distinguished bunch no no um disrespect intended to the current queen who just turned 90. Mm. Um, so I guess that's another source of frustration is that, you know, if she had had a child, I guess a son in particular, but a daughter too, that, you know, might have been, you know, who inherited her talent for leadership as well as her father's, it might have changed the course of history, certainly um, the history that immediately followed. Mm. Um, but, you know, so I think that's another reason that people want to think that, you know, there could have been some, a different
2: path. So, in real life, uh, one candidate for uh, a child was uh, elizabeth uh, that 's really popular with a lot of people is Robert Devereux. What do you think about him as a, as a suspect? And- right, He was one
1: of several people that she sort of showered her um, r- royal pleasures on in ways that that um, mystified people at the time. you know why him yeah. and uh, so there were always rumors, and she did she did uh, have a, um, a very close relationship with his father. Um, Robert Dudley, oh, yeah. um, also known as um, Lester, and you know, I think she had his bedroom moved next to hers, and uh-huh. you know, there were all sorts of. So, you know, if if there was going to be an uh, an offspring, it would have been most likely with him. And there was actually um, there was someone named Arthur Dudley who surfaced at one point who claimed to be the offspring of the two of them.
2: Oh yeah, shut, shut up at Philip of Spain's place.
1: Yeah, because the Catholics never never saw her as a legitimate. Well, as a legitimate period, but as a legitimate monarch of England. So if they could find any sort of scandal that would, um, you know, add further um, illegitimacy to her, it would work to their ends. And in fact, in, in my book, that's one of the reasons that she um, disguises the fact that she had a child was that it would just, it would imperil her um, her claim to the throne. And of course, in the Sampersona, she has the child before she becomes queen. Um, most of the rumors about, or the theories about her having a child, have her having the child while she was queen. And, 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 there's, and as I said, there's so many of them, you know, she, at one point, um, she, uh, she took to her bed, she had some sort of mysterious um, illness. Um, which I think they called at the time dropsy, Um, but today we would call it edema, which is the swelling in the midsection. So, of course, if you, um, and I think that's pretty much historical fact that she had, that she was taken to her bed with dropsy or edema and that she um, had a a swollen abdomen. So if you're inclined to think that um, she had a child, this might have been a good time for that child to have been um, carried because she had, you know, she could have used that as an excuse to, to disguise her pregnancy.
2: So it really would have been kind of hard to conceal the pregnancy because I mean, she was kind of like the Princess Diana of her day and there were so many eyes upon her.
1: It, it certainly does and that's I think that's why I'm generally not a conspiracy theorist like back to the Lee Harvey Oswald uh, uh, idea, you know after all of these years it seems impossible that no one would have come forward to say they knew about this conspiracy, not one person has come forward. Mm-hmm. And similarly, in Elizabeth's time, the only difference is there—you know—there were no cameras then, there were no um, recording devices. You know, so it, it would all have just been people um, sort of writing letters, and um, so it would have been harder. To, it would have been, I think, much easier to disguise than in Princess Diana's day, our day, mm-hmm. um, okay. and you know, a- a- any abnormality becomes fodder. You know, for for the for the media over the internet and so on. Yeah. So I don't. I think I think she could have hidden it. Um, but uh, and the and the and the Elizabethan court was a really um, uh, to use an old-fashioned word, libidinous place. I mean, there there were. Um, you know, there was lots of intrigue going on. Um, I mean, her own mother had been, Anne Boleyn, had been um, executed for adultery. She was the, um, the the wife of the king, and many believe that she was, in fact, adulterous. So, you know, why would, the, why would the wife of the queen take those kind of risks if she didn't think there was actually a pretty good chance she could get away with it? Mm-hmm. Um, and some people think she actually had one of her um, lovers was her own brother.
2: Oh, Anne Boleyn?
1: Yeah, which hastened her her execution.
2: I don't know if she was guilty of adultery, actually, because Henry VIII did have a penchant for just wanting to move on and getting tired of whoever he was with and wanting to find himself a new wife.
1: We could do another podcast on that, you know, was she actually adulterous, but the point is that it wasn't so wildly unbelievable at the time that she might have been, because the court was a place of trysts and intrigue and, you know, all of which is to say that it's, it's conceivable that Elizabeth could have um, disguised her pregnancy um, and disguised her love affair with, with Dudley or Lester um, or thought she could have because there was so much going on at the time. It was that kind of court.
2: Uh, you have found a new potential father uh, for a child that Elizabeth might have had named Miles Stafford. So did Miles really exist?
1: No, so I'm oh, uh, sorry to say.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's OK.
1: It was much, I, I found it much more interesting to invent him and then dispatch him quickly. You never really hear from him, other than that he had um, this um, rare genetic disorder uh-huh. that passed on the this um, tendency to shivering, as someone calls it in the book, uh-huh. um, which I thought was an interesting um, sort of way to keep his sort of lineage alive, was you know, not in a particularly positive way. Uh-huh. Um, It also made it, you know, when you're writing a thriller, it made it interesting because, you know, when the um, uh, Lee Nicholson, the 21st century heroine of the book, would come across um, various locations um, where the Filer family lived. Mm-hmm. Um, she would fi- see, for instance, two fireplaces in one room and realize you know, that became an indication that these people who lived there had a real obsession with staying warm uh-huh. <laughs> so that 's the one thing that my, that I had my fictional father of the um, of the Elizabethan offspring um, uh, pass on to his uh, to his descendants. Um, And, of course, the name Filer, you know, as you know, because you read the book, it's full of wordplay, and the, you know, the word Filer um, is an adaptation of the French word feast for son, and ER, of course, for Elizabeth Rex, and French was the the main language spoken at the time, or a version of it, in the Elizabethan court, so it was like, you know, it was interesting or likely that she um, would have had... If she had a child might have given him that name just as a sort of sly reference to who his his, his at least his mother was
0: Seth I, I have a question, so this is going to kind of be a, a break in what we 've talked about so far but how did you how did you go about doing your research for the book because there 's a lot of content here
1: uh, well i this has been my one of my the Elizabethan period or really the whole Tudor period in England is my favorite in history it 's one of those really rare times in history where there just seems to be a confluence of, um, of really extraordinary people. Um, so of course you have Elizabeth, you have her father, Henry VIII, an amazing person. You have Anne Boleyn, a fascinating character. You have Dudley himself. You have Sir Walter Raleigh. Of course you have Shakespeare, Bacon, and and all the great artists of the time, writers. And, And it's, and I think another period that I also am fascinated with, very different, is the um, uh, 18th century America when you had all the founding fathers, you know, this rare confluence of just incredibly um, intelligent, creative um, people coming together. Um, and you know, you know, there's always the debate, did the times make the man, the man makes the time? I don't know the answer to that. It's probably not even worth thinking about too much. but. Elizabethan England or Tudor England was one of those periods. It's always been one of my favorites, so I'm fairly knowledgeable about it. Uh, you know, even before I started writing this book, but you know, of course, I ended up doing a lot of research. You know, you can do a lot of it um, on the web. Um, including the Elizabeth File site that you mentioned. I just went there, and by the way, I I certainly have been to that site many times. Um, There's a wonderful book um, by Eliza Picard called Elizabeth's London, um, which is about sort of everyday life in Elizabethan England, which is something that you don't get a lot of when you read biographies of Elizabeth. You get very little of it, in fact. Um, And it's a wonderful book. It's actually a lot lot of fun to read, just about sort of what it was like to live at that time as an ordinary citizen rather than as a member of the court. Um, and that really helped with a lot of sort of the small details about Elizabethan medicine, particularly childbirth. So the opening scene is actually quite factual, other than the fact that it involved Elizabeth having a baby in terms of you know the ability to smell garlic as an indicator of pregnancy and things like that.
2: That's how they knew back in the day?
1: Yeah, they put garlic under it, if you, and if you um, couldn't smell it, it meant you were pregnant. Um, it's probably not that simple, but... Um, Uh, But there's a lot of that. And the idea that men were not allowed in the birthing room, for instance, only midwives. The doctor was banished. And uh, details like that came from this wonderful book called Elizabeth's London. And then at some point, I started writing it and realized I needed to go to England directly. I've been there many times before, but um, for specific um, scenes in the book. So I went to Hatfield, which is the palace about, I think it's about 40 minutes from London, where Elizabeth basically held a prisoner by her older sister Mary, the Uh, the, known as Bloody Mary, the the Catholic tutor. Um, She was sort of under house arrest there, and that's where the opening scene and the birth take place. And I just had to be there. There's no way you can write about it convincingly without going there. Um, and uh, and I was able to convince, It was it's open part of the year to the public, but I was able to convince the people in charge there um, to let me in. And there's actually a new palace built by Cecil, Elizabeth's great advisor, but the old palace where she was um, held under house arrest is still there as well. It's actually used for weddings and bar mitzvahs apparently today. <laughs> but I was able to, something I don't think Elizabeth would have appreciated, but I was able to, um, to tour it on my own and really get a sense of what the place looked like. And um, there's really no substitute for that. I even was, you know, you walk up from the gatehouse and then back down through the little village around the edges of the, um, of the estate. And you really get a sense of what it was like to live at that time. And um, so that was really key. And then the other thing uh, I did other research while I was there. um, One of the important venues in the book and a place that I spent a lot of time in while I was writing this was obviously Westminster Abbey, um, particularly the Lady Chapel um, at the very... I think it's the back. I don't know. It could be the back or the front. It's, based, it's behind the altar, and it's where um, Elizabeth is buried. Although, if you read the book, I, not to give anything away, but that, that becomes questionable. But Elizabeth is buried there. Ironically, she's buried directly on top of her hated sister, Mary. And um, I spent at least half a day there um, sort of taking notes and trying to... Um, you know, block out the scene. Um, what was interesting was, you know, I probably looked sort of suspicious because I spent so much time there. But um, the, the guards there are actually called beetles. It's very Dickensian, m- maybe even um, Elizabethan. But. Um, I love the name, by the way. It's an, it's amazing that they're still called that. And um, there was a succession of them coming, in, you know, on and off shift while I was there. And what I really needed from them was um, information on the security, not of you know the the sixteenth uh, century, <laughs> yeah,
2: the, the cameras and stuff.
1: The cameras, yeah. So Those I um, so I would. You know I would pull them aside and say, "What's that up in the corner there?" and they'd look at me like I was insane or possibly dangerous and say, "Well, you know that's an infrared camera um so then i in that you know i they gave me more details about when they go on when they go off, so that I was able to then do some um research on how you could um um disable them using actually the the phone from a um um a fire extinguisher okay. so uh and I'm, I was really worried I'd be stopped on the way out, but maybe they were just happy to see me go after all the hours I'd spent there. That was a kind of research you really can't do on the Internet. You have to go there and see for yourself.
2: I noticed that your character, Lee Nichols, does the same thing. And it's
1: hard not it's hard to hang out without moving because you look more suspicious than if you move around I think.
2: Yeah. You know, I'm really sorry I've never been to Westminster Abbey. I have been to London and I guess I have to go back to London now because I really want to see it now.
1: Oh, it's it's really amazing. I mean, it um particularly that part of it, uh it's 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 it's, it's just beautiful and it's and it's so full of history. Um it's great actually the the character of Lee says that it was never her favorite place because it's a place that commemorates death with inscriptions. Rather than a place that anyone lived, but I don't feel that way. I I feel overwhelmed by history when I walk in there.
0: Why is it, Seth, that you believe that there's this continuing fascination with Elizabeth?
1: I, I think it's a couple things. The, the fascination with her is because she was just out and out one of the most fascinating political leaders ever to live, and part of part of that is that just that she was a, an absolute monarch um, of a of a great nation and helps oversee. Um, England's transition from maybe a second-rate power to one of you know a first-rate power, particularly through the defeat of the Spanish and uh, the Spanish Armada. Um, and I, so there's that. I think the fact that she never married is doubly fascinating, because she, you know, she didn't get to power in the usual, or she didn't hold on to power in the usual ways, which is exercising it through a man. I mean, even her older sister Mary married Philip of Spain, um, and they were very much co-rulers, but Elizabeth would have none of that. There's a great um, line that um, I actually quote in the, um, in the novel, the Semper Sonnet, by the Scottish ambassador. Um, he, he says, I know the truth of that, madam. You need not tell it me. Your majesty thinks if you were married, you would be but queen of England, and now you are both king and queen. And I think that really sums up why a lot of people are fascinated by her—that she just she ruled, kind of on her own terms—and and, and you know whether or not she had a child, and she, presumably she didn't. She um, she didn't marry, and she didn't marry because she just did not want to um, to to share the to share power with anyone. And that's such a. In, in, from, from a historical purpose, that uh, perspective rather, that seems to such an interesting and unusual uh, attitude. Today, we wouldn't we wouldn't think twice about it. But then, just the idea that a woman wanted absolute power and wouldn't even share it with a man seems quite interesting. As for having a child, I think that the fascination with that again is just that people just can't don't want to accept the idea. Um, that, that it all ended with her, that, that, this, that this brilliant, brilliant woman, daughter of a brilliant, though quite vicious father, sort of um, through uh, her refusal to marry and have a child, um, ended this this great sort of genetic line. So that people want, you know, are, you know, are very, they cling to any theory or minor fact that might prove otherwise. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's really what it's all about.
2: Yeah, there's that whole thing about keeping the question of marriage open as a way to keep threats away, uh, such as, say, Philip of Spain, uh, for example— who, if he had married Elizabeth, would have taken England through marriage instead of through a military campaign. Right. And she also ha- held on to an important
1: bargaining chip. So, yeah. I mean, as, for, for as long as she wasn't married, she could use her marriage as a carrot to, you know, a- attract potential foreign suitors. And she did that all the time. She, did, she was forever negotiating marriage, you know, sending her ambassadors out to negotiate marriage contracts that never amounted to anything. But it, as you say, it held off war, but also enabled her to be in a good bargaining position. You know, not to get political on this, but maybe it shows why her life still resonates so deeply with people. I was, the other night I was watching some news show about um, uh, Ted Cruz picking Carla Fiorina as his running mate. And people said, you know, it's obvious why he did it, but some bright pundits said, you know, he's given up an important bargaining chip uh, because now, when he goes to the convention, he's already has the vice the vice president picked. He can't hold that out as a lure to attract other supporters. And I think Elizabeth this is where it all ties in, Elizabeth did the same. By not marrying, it, she always had something that she could um, promise. She, there was always the lure of giving away her hand in marriage to attract, to gain concessions, and so on. So, I, you know, it's funny how those lessons from the uh, 16th century still are hold relevance today. And the other thing in my book, as you know, um the opening scene i 'm not giving anything away is she gives birth, and yeah. it's a pretty horrendous birth. I think most childbirths at the time were there was certainly no um, um, anesthesia at the time oh, yeah. and she was so, um, in my book, she was so horrified at, at having to endure that again, that she vows right then, I'm never going through this again. And there were theories that one of the reasons that she never married was that if she married she'd be expected to have a child, and if she had a child, she, like, I don't know the exact figure, but, but you know, a, a big percentage of women would die in childbirth. Oh, yeah. um, and, thus, and thus not only, you know, imperil her own life, but imperil the reign and imperil the Tudor dynasty and put her country at risk. Um, um, so in the Semper sonnet, I make that quite explicit. She she knew about the peril because she had gone through it. Um, but a lot of people think that that's one of the reasons she never had a child. That she she simply was afraid um, that uh, that it would kill her, and that that would not only be you know obviously not good for her, but it would be very um, it would put the entire kingdom at risk.
2: Uh, well, yeah, chastity was not as uncommon in those days because actually i mean death in childbirth was very common and there was also things like venereal disease
1: which were incurable exactly there were i mean you know but you remember that it back elizabethan england it wasn't um it wasn't a it's certainly a court it wasn't a completely chaste situation and and actually um you know uh, um, virginity was sort of mocked. There are instances of Shakespeare where it's mocked. It's not necessarily, um, it's, it's certainly talked about publicly as a virtue, but it was, um, it was made fun of a bit, um, behind the scenes. But the truth is she actually gloried in it, in her virginity, and she talked about it all the time. It was sort of a triumph of her will, um, over, you know, um, corporeal desire. You, you know, the, um, the colony of Virginia was named for her virginity. Um, You know, so it was something.
2: Oh, really? I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, she she gloried in it, not because I think it showed sort of Christian virtue so much as it showed her strength, you know, her resistance. Um, And to to actually have a colony um, named for your um, for your virginity is really quite extraordinary when you think of it.
2: Yeah, it really is.
1: And if and if and in fact, if any of these theories are ever proven correct, will they have to rename Virginia?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and what would they rename it? More importantly, I, uh, remark-
2: I guess you would have called it Pregnancia, maybe. <laughs> West,
1: and of course, it'd be West Pregnancia. <laughs> uh,
2: you know, I'm, I, I want to say by the way, I thought it was really funny that uh, William Shakespeare makes an appearance in your book, uh, but he didn't actually get any lines.
1: Well, it was. I mean, first of all, I just was, as you know, the Semper Sonnet is a sonnet... Purported to be by Shakespeare, which I unfortunately had to write, uh, and then not only write but embed with all sorts of cryptic clues and things like that. Yeah,
2: I was going um, to ask you about that. How tough was that? Oh, it was impossible. I spent yeah. so long. First of all, just the,
1: just writing a Shakespeare sonnet, which this sonnet will fool nobody—that it was that it's by Shakespeare. But you know, just writing the sonnet. Um, you know, the 14 lines with the with the, with the rhyme scheme um, was really, really hard. I and mean, then almost every line in it has an embedded clue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I'm, you know, I am uh, addicted to um, English crosser puzzles. I don't know if you're familiar with them from the Times, London Times or The Guardian. They, they do different kinds of puzzles than American puzzles, which I'm also addicted to. Um, they do cryptic puzzles, um, which are full of um, puns and anagrams and double entendre and things like that. Um, and all of that um, is very much embedded in the sonnet, and actually in in other parts of the novel as well. So, and and that goes back to Shakespeare himself. He, you know, as you know, his his plays and and his sonnets to a lesser extent are full of puns and plays on words. You know, in I was in Romeo and Juliet, um, when Mercutio is dying, um, he's known as sort of a, a joker or jester. Um, and he says, I'm, I may still be a joker, but ask for me tomorrow and you shall find me a grave man. So any cryptic. A uh, crossword compiler, as they're called, or setter would, would or creator would would love that double entendre and would and would use it in in their in their crosswords. And so I wanted to embed that in the sonnet, and then that was a way. The sonnet was a way of connecting the story in Elizabeth's England with the story in the 21st century because the sonnet is discovered by Lee Nichols, and so and and she gradually uncovers the meaning of the sonnet and what it said about Elizabeth's child, for instance.
2: So why did you choose a female lead character? Well, you know,
1: I wanted to... I thought it would be interesting to... Um... I thought it would be interesting to make the protagonist a woman i I thought it would be an interesting contrast with um you know Elizabeth living i guess four or five hundred years before, and a, a woman living in the twenty first century and all the differences in their life so that's that 's really how I came up with her was just thinking, you know I want to write a novel about two women, essentially, one the great Elizabeth and one someone named Liz living in the current day. Who, um, or Lee, rather—not to give anything away—Lee, living in the current day, who um, you know has many more choices um, and can live a much different life, um, but and in some ways has more sort of personal power than even the, the an absolute monarch living in the 16th century. Um, and that's that's really how I came up with her. I thought it'd be interesting to contrast two women living at different times. Uh, And I made her a scholar of Elizabethan literature just because I knew that that would be how she would plausibly come into contact with this supposedly lost uh, sonnet and be able to read it and understand its significance.
2: Uh, So so Lee Nichols goes on her own in the investigation, rather than, uh, you know, having a man backing her up or anything like that, much kind of like Elizabeth.
1: Yeah, and I, and I wanted that to be the case also, that she she took her pleasure where she wanted and needed it, but that she was very much um, determined to, to be independent and to be alone and, and, and actually has, you know, in 21st century terms, we'd say maybe intimacy problems. I don't know that Elizabeth would have said that about herself but uh, and, I, and that's exactly right' that's, that, that was the contrast that I thought would be interesting to explore
2: in this book. so you hinted in the an email to us that uh, there was a final clue in the book that didn 't get solved. Um, so what was that final clue? Clueless.
1: Yeah, so I thought it would be fun as i said I am I am a um, avid solver of of English cryptic puzzles, um, particularly those in The Guardian, which you can get you can download free from the internet and I'm hoping that the book will connect with people um, here and in England and everywhere who do these puzzles, because it's they are a bit of an obsession. Um, and the clues that are within the sonnet are all the kinds of clues that someone who solves English cryptic puzzles would immediately see as clues and would work at. Um, and probably be able to solve. So when uh, in one of the very last scenes, I'm going to try not to give anything away about the, the novel, but in one of the very last scenes of The Semper Sonnet, uh, just before Lee um, tosses, I don't want to say, <laughs> before she um, disposes of a certain important element in the book, let's say, yeah, um, she, no, writes, no. she writes on a piece of paper, I'll just read it, it's only four short lines, she writes on a piece of paper, Here, Queen, for word I bring from distant time and place, the augur clasps the common man in firm embrace. Oniswa swaki mali you friend of gold are made in France. So, "Oniswaki Malipal" is the emblem of the—I think it's the Royal how, uh, Order of the Garter, but it's actually the motto of the um, of the English royal family. Interestingly, it's in France, but it means "Shame on you who think bad of it." Oniswaki Malipal. So, I embedded that. But anyone who does cryptic crosswords of the type that run in the Guardian and the Times would be able to hear, read those four lines, and instantly know that those are. Um, cryptic clues that have a very specific solution. So I, I have it in there. She tosses it into the sea. Uh, the character Lee, but um, and, and and doesn't tell the reader what those lines mean. But I'm hoping that there are readers of the novel. Um, who see it as an um, embedded clue and are able to solve it. And I'm hoping actually to connect with them maybe through Twitter or Facebook or somehow, because it, it intrigues me, and I'm curious how many people will, will recognize that for what it is.
2: Like, that would be really interesting to see uh, you know, if people do solve it uh, and you know, who shows up to solve it. And uh, it would be cool to see how many people respond and uh, I'd like to ask you, by the way, is there going to be a sequel uh, to your book where the uh, problem that's kind of at the heart of the Semper sonnet will sort of come back again?
1: Well, so I I, I may write a, a sequel. I've sort of fleshed that out my mind a little bit. Um, it won't involve Semper per se. It will involve Lee and the secret that we know about her mm-hmm. um, from the end of the book. Um, And it will also involve her sort of a a bridge between the 21st century and the character of Lee and Elizabeth in England. So it will have that. It won't be Semper again, though. So I I have sort of sketched that out, um, a little bit of paper, mostly in my mind, because I like her as a character. And I like what we know about her at the end. I think it's sort of interesting. Uh Um, So uh, it would be I think it would be fun for me to, to try to keep her alive. So I'll see how, you know, if readers connect with her as a character. Um, and if I do, then I will definitely um, I will solve the the clue um, for for all those who didn't solve it on their own.
2: Well, Seth, it's it's been fun talking to you, but indeed, I'm, yeah, but it's uh, it's. Uh, probably uh, you're probably out of time, and so uh, is there anything else before we wrap up the interview that you'd like to tell us?
1: Um, well, not really. I mean, the one thing that I think is interesting, um, and that might be relevant to this podcast, is that one of the theories you probably come across it in your research that I, that is not explored in the sonnet, but is is something I've been aware of, and and sort of in some ways ties it all together is that, you know, one of the other theories about Elizabeth is that she actually was, you know, had had a child with the Earl of Oxford. So, of course, you know, there's all these theories that Elizabeth had a a bastard child, but there's also... Even more theories that Shakespeare didn't write his own plays, and there's you know all sorts of um, theories advanced for who that could be. And one of them is Edward De Vere, the Earl of Oxford, who was in fact a writer on his own. And so you know the thought is that he was the true author of of the works of Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. And so there are theories that actually Elizabeth had an affair with him, and that and 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 that their child. Um, was someone named, was the Earl of Southampton who um, figures prominently um, in some of these in these theories? I think the sonnets are are are, um, are dedicated to him. So in in a weird way, the conspiracy theories about Elizabeth about Elizabeth having a child and Shakespeare not writing his own books. Are conjoined with this theory that she might have been um, actually had an affair with um, the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, um, who was the true, um, the true Shakespeare. there are also theories that their son was the true Shakespeare yeah, exactly. uh, and that Francis Bacon was, and that she might have had an affair with him or that he in fact was the son of hers. so it all gets very, very tangled oh, um, all the. Theories. It's also, you know, just as we, it seems frustrating that a great person like Elizabeth you know, couldn't pass on her greatness to another generation and generations after that. There's also a frustration that, you know, the greatest writer of the English language, perhaps any language, um, was this obscure um, actor, playwright who we don't know much about. It would be so much more satisfying to think that he was one of these larger-than-life characters like the Earl of Oxford or Francis Bacon. Um, And so from that frustration, I think, is born um, all of these conspiracy theories.